and gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome to the latest edition of the Good Trouble Podcast. Uh, my name is Gregory Ball. I am one of the the minions and and workers over at King Boston, toiling away to try to get things done in a proper manner in this fine city of ours. And to those many, many, many uh, very focused efforts, we have friends, friends like my buddy Reggie from over at Mass Budget. Reggie, how are you feeling, my friend? Look up. What's up, Greg? I'm doing well today. I'm glad to be here. And, you know, budget season has started. So we, at Mass Budget, things are all a raise, but things are, things are going well. It's good to see you. But, so the budget's in. Does that mean that there's some cash around? Does it mean things are getting done? What's going on? Well, tell me a little bit about that before we jump into the fray. Before we jump into the fray, uh, for folks listening, the fiscal year 2023 budget season has kicked off with Governor Charlie Baker's last budget recommendation, which dropped Wednesday, January 26th. So he set out about, you know, the state budget is roughly $50 billion, and it's a balance sheet of how we raise the money to spend on essential programs and then where we spend it. So uh, we'll stay tuned for additional analysis coming out from Mass Budget and from some of our partners. But uh, we're excited to see what the House Ways and Means Committee will be doing in terms of their budget recommendations, uh, in terms of actually seeing where they are proposing to spend some of the, some of these dollars. And speaking of spending dollars, we're in the process of kicking off our our first uh, Embrace Ideas Festival. We're we're getting that together, and we're going into uh, June of uh, June 13th to June 17th. We're going to be kicking off the festival this year. It's going to be the first time that we've ever done it. And we are going to be doing uh, a lot of things involving that. And we'll be talking about that more. We'll probably bring on some people that are going to be involved in the festival. And in fact, our guest today, if I know him and I know, know him well enough, he will find a way to be involved in our festival in some way, shape, or form. Most definitely. Uh, <laughs> is that not correct, sir? Mr. Dorsey, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you both for having me. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a long time. Two of my favorite guys. And yes, we plan to be present at the Ideas Festival. Yes, we're going to have a good time, man. I, I got a couple of, a couple of tricks up my sleeve that I'm still working on, but we're going to have a good time. Yeah, so yeah. listen, I've known you, I'm tr- let's not use any numbers quite all because I don't want to date us and make ourselves sound extra, but I've known you for a significantly long time. We were very much, much younger men um, when we first met. That's right. Um, tell me, how, how does a guy from Detroit end up in Boston? Because my thing is, I've always thought about this. If I'm going to move, I'm going to go from cold to warmth. You went from cold to cold. So why does the guy from Detroit end up in Boston, Massachusetts? Yeah. Um, so uh, hopefully this is an intriguing story. But first of all, I'm, I'm a northerner, so I don't ever see myself below the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, I like all four seasons and I like a little brisk wind. So um, what brought me to Boston was uh, when I was in middle school at Lennington Middle School in Detroit, Michigan on the west side uh, i had the opportunity to take the psat as a seventh grader and eighth grader uh, and as a result got recruited by a better chance uh, the same organization that brought deval patrick to milton academy uh, and was recruited to come to concord academy Uh, i I also won't put the dates on it but uh, i did uh, 
four years in, in Concord, Massachusetts. And in a lot of ways, Boston uh, or the area started to become home because as a teenager, this is where a lot of my social relationships uh, were starting to form. Um, when I graduated from Concord, uh, I was of the mind that uh, I wanted to take a year off before doing college. And so, Greg, you'll remember uh, our common friend, Jamie Kahn, uh, with whom I went mm -hmm. to Concord Academy. Uh, we decided that we would do city year and its inaugural year. So Jamie and I were in the first ever city year core. Um, and so wow. spent uh, that time getting to know Boston and Cambridge a lot more deeply. And again, you know, just uh, putting down more roots here. Uh, it was the point that, you know, I got more serious about uh, music production and playing and a few other things. And so hooked up with uh, with some cats and past in you know, people's orbits uh, like Jamal Crawford and some other folks uh, when, when Uno was doing his thing. Um, and so that was kind of uh, what drew me here because uh, I could do a lot of the things that I loved. Uh, I went back home. Uh, to go to the University of Michigan, uh, but was recruited soon after uh, to work as a policy analyst at uh, Apt Associates. And that brought me back to Cambridge. And uh, there's a long story that follows professionally after that. But um, Boston is where I've been serving and living, but let's not get it twisted at all. I'm a Detroiter all day, every day. Um, so, uh, still spend, uh, a lot, a lot of time at home, but, uh, Boston is where I've made a deep investment. All right. So Ron, can you tell us a little bit about how you've seen the landscape of music, art, and culture change since you first got here and what you're looking mm. forward to in terms of, you know, reclaiming public space. We've got a lot of great organizations and programs working to highlight uh, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous entrepreneurs, musicians, uh, you know, small businesses. What are what are you looking forward to from the music scene here? Yeah, in in Boston, it's it's uh, I think it's been an interesting journey. I think you've had uh, one this level at which uh, uh, there is institutional training and music making that's happened through Berkeley, NEC, and other places like that, and you know pumped out some of the world's finest talent. And when I first came to Boston. You know, uh, as is much the case today, you still wanted to pop your head in Wally's to see uh, what the future stars were doing and how they were building their chops. And so when I came here, you know, it was Layla Hathaway uh, was hitting those stages. Uh, when I came here, the Marsalises had just left uh, those stages. And I think, uh, you know, Branford's first few albums were big in the market. And then, you know, Wenton was, you know, becoming a god of sorts. Uh, at, at that point. Um, but, you know, you had the John Mayers pass through and uh, a whole lot of folks. So, you know, there's always been a lot of talent. It's not always been clear how you get connected to and see that talent. And as somebody who was connected to more uh, community musicians and folks making music, there was always this kind of underground of people playing. I think about people like uh, Prince Charles Alexander, um, you know, who is on Berkeley faculty right now, but, you know, Boston guy grew up in the city, multi-instrumentalist, incredible producer, incredible engineer, uh, you know, has credits beyond belief, Grammy awards, but I'm not sure a whole lot of folks knew who Prince Charles was as compared to, you know, some of the musicians who became 
household names through the Berkeley pipeline and, and some other ways, but uh, a lot of talent here, you know, of course, we all know uh, New Edition and, you know, eventually, you know, following their, their template, New Kids and some other folks who flew the, uh, who flew the Boston banner, but Boston always kind of had like this producer subculture and was doing a whole lot, but still trying to kind of make its name in the, the hip hop world. You know, Edo got there, um, yeah, Made Men, um, Antonio and those cats. Um, but, you know, not the kind of breakthroughs that maybe uh, had been hoped for, but it's always been a thriving scene um, here in Boston, but it's just been about, you know, where can you go see the folks who are making uh, this music, it, was it at the, the Lyricist Lounge? Was it at Critical Breakdown? Uh, you know, a few other places, but there really weren't establishments beyond places like Wally's and sometimes on Berkeley's own stage and, you know, maybe over at Regatta Bar and some other places where you could see local talent uh, doing its thing. And so uh, I think both on uh, the live venue presentation and on the recording side, uh, we need to capture uh, more of the talent here um, and give them the props that they're due. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting you said it because when you're naming those people, I also thought about Ryan Leslie because he was here. During the, yeah, uh, yeah, well. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny because it, it's almost like as, as if everybody hit a ceiling and felt like they had to leave. And part of the reason that that was was the infrastructure that was, yep. you know, in terms of ownership, you we name, you name Wally's, and part of the reasons we can name Wally's and why it was the institution and why it always was that space was because the owners were invested in the in staying in that in that same space right. and being that that conduit for the community. And I think the the biggest problem that we've always had has been in the ownership side of things of of being you know having owners who were were kind of shepherds of the scene in addition to just owning the venue. Yeah. And, you know, I know that in, in addition to many of the other things that you've done professionally, you're now a part of the team that's creating Jazz Urbane. Can you tell us a little bit about Jazz Urbane and, and yeah. what you're putting would, together there? Would love to. And before I do that, I do want to shout out one of my favorite artists. I think somebody uh, we all know, uh, Wyatt Jackson. Uh, yes. Because where you gave the example of people kind of hitting the ceiling where they had to leave, Wyatt is an artist who, you know, kind of spanned genres and just made it a point that Boston was going to be a uh, home base. You know, he, he saw the world uh, uh, as an artist, but this is a place where he dedicated his life. And I think that there are more artists like Wyatt who've done that. And I think we want to figure out, again, how we give them their props uh, and, and the spotlight that they deserve. But turning to Jazzerbane Cafe, uh, we're really excited uh, about this venture. And so I am partnered uh, with uh, former director of Africana Studies at Berkeley, Dr. Bill Banfield, uh, and Nia Grace, the owner at Daryl's Corner Kitchen and Bar, as well as the newly opened Underground, uh, to bring what will be about a 200-seat uh, restaurant and live music venue to the bowling building uh, right at the corner of Warren Street, uh, and Washington Street. And so, you know, this venture really grows a lot out of Dr. Banfield's vision, where several years ago, he really wanted to bring talent together uh, through a music label, which was the first imprint uh, for the brand. And, and the label has about 
120 songs in his catalog from uh, Bill's own music to recordings by Greg Gruber Jr., uh, bassist and steel pianist Ron Reed, Zali Gonzalez Zamora, um, Mike Burton out of Atlanta, who is um, one of Jill Scott's musical directors. I'm not going to get everybody in there, but you have an idea of the, the level of talent that is on uh, the label. All of the music can be found wherever you love to stream music. But there came a point in about 2016 or so that Dr. Banfield started talking to the city about, you know, how do we start to create a place where you can predictably see all of this talent, where we can bring national talent uh, back to Boston. Uh, his Rolodex is formidable. And so, you know, there are a lot of folks who have already said, once this is up and going, we want to come and play Boston. Um, and hopefully I'm not speaking out of school too much because this is uh, somebody that I know Bill talks to frequently and I talk to uh, on occasion, but we had the privilege of having uh, Stokely Williams record on the first Jazz or Bane album uh, with us. And uh, Stokely has pretty much been like, you guys say the word and you will see me in Nubian Square uh, and we'll, we'll do the thing there. So uh, I expect that we will get many artists of his caliber, but we are also gonna lift up the artists who call uh, Boston home and it'll be across genres. The name is Jazz Urbane Cafe, but this is not just about jazz. It's about the urbane part of it as well. So it's about uh, all of the music that people of color make uh, throughout the diasporas. Um, so we're looking forward to uh, having a good time uh, on a nightly basis. Our hope is that uh, we can get uh, to opening towards the end of the year, beginning uh, of next year, but uh, leading up to that, and Greg, you mentioned the Ideas Festival, we'll have a lot of opportunities to um, bring the public into some demonstration experiences, uh, like the one that we did last year with King Boston and Roxbury Cultural District for Nubian Nights in Juneteenth, uh, where we did a light and music display in Nubian Square. So we're, we're excited about the prospects. Um, currently uh, building the resource base to make sure uh, that we get it all in. Uh, our hope is that uh, the majority of ownership in this venture will be people of color. I'm really glad that you brought up Nubian Nights, Ron, because thinking back to what, <laughs> thinking back to what uh, space needs to be there, you know, the investment mm -hmm. in, in the bowling building and the revitalization of Nubian Square mm -hmm. has often felt at times like it's not designed necessarily for the folks who are intended who actually are currently based there. And, yeah. you know, bringing back that urbane aspect and focusing on local residents and local talent, mm -hmm. especially given all the educational resources that we have is crucial if we're looking to make Boston a destination again for, you know, for, for musicians and for individuals who want to actually come and stay here. I'm curious yeah. just to get your sense of, um, with Boston being such a transplant city and a lot of people mm -hmm. kind of coming in, you know, building up their career a bit and bouncing out. What other strategies do we have as an opportunity to keep folks here in place in Boston? Yeah, so, you know, as a transplant myself, um, I can attest to the fact that there's a lot that is wonderful about uh, Boston and to invest your life in, uh, in Boston. And I'll say, just to go back to my own story, what was uh, important about Boston for me as a young person was this was a place that I felt like I could do lifelong learning. I had a passion for uh, community and activist work. I had a passion for policy work, all of which I could have done at home in Boston, but uh, I felt like a lot of the premier platforms for the work that I wanted to do uh, were here and that I could transfer lessons uh, back to Detroit, back to other contexts, 
uh, and some other things. So um, for a city that is relatively compact and small, Boston offers outsized amenities. Boston offers uh, outsized capacity. I think what Boston is still working on is fully activating belonging. Um, because either you find it or you kind of don't. And I think we've all heard the stories, uh, especially uh, people of color asking essentially, where's my community? Where's my tribe uh, when I've been here? But some of that is about uh, where you first landed uh, when you got here. If, if your job was over in Charlestown and that's the neighborhood that you landed in, yeah, it's gonna be a little bit harder to figure out where everybody else uh, is gathered. Um, it is also the case though, that people of color in Boston should feel fully entitled to walk the streets of Charlestown as well and go where they wanna go. So I think we've got to, uh, we're working on both, uh, making sure I think that we maximize the agency that people of color have in Boston, as well as making sure that we create uh, the places where you know we can take off our shoes, kick up, kick up our feet uh, and feel right at home. And there should be multiple uh, places. It shouldn't just be the Jazzervane Cafe. It shouldn't just be any Daryl's or any one place. It's got to be uh, a number of places. Um, you know, I think organizations like Boston Wild Black are doing incredible work, uh, making sure that uh, people get fully introduced and integrated uh, into the possibility and the, the activity uh, that is going on in Boston. Um, I think King Boston is beginning to do uh, some of that work uh, as well. And folks are kind of stepping forward in a lot of ways um, to put Boston's uh, unique cultural representation on different stages. And I do applaud a number of the uh, institutional arts organizations, uh, be it the Huntington, uh, be it Berkeley and some other folks who have said, and, and Michael Bobbitt in particular is in, in the back of my head from, uh, from his time, um, at uh, American Repertory where there's just been a decision that the narratives that are gonna to get told, the people who work in front of and behind the stage are gonna represent what the city and the region looks like. That sets a very different tone and that starts to create uh, a context for welcoming and belonging. So I think that uh, I would say Boston is at a point that it hasn't been where it's conscious about making that decision. But when I think about the Michael Bobbitts and the Sheena Colliers of the world, there are folks who are instigating the change and that's always been needed. So I, I, I wonder how much of, so, cause there's the many lives of Ron Dorsey. Um, <laughs> and how much of you, your experience in navigating city hall and being mm -hmm. in those spaces, how much has that helped you in terms of getting Jazz or Bane where it needs to go? Because you know, Boston, I always say it's like Game of Thrones with funnier accents. And, you know, you got to know, <laughs> you, you got to know how to navigate this world that, that we have here. You know, so how how are you able to survive here in Westeros yeah. and has your previous experience um, helped you in 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 launching Jazz or Bane and getting it where it needs to go? No, certainly uh, it, it is helping and, you know, we still have a ways to go. But when Dr. Banfield started talking about this idea with the city in 2016, 2017, um, one, he was just, uh, I think, sage about kind of stepping into a relationship with, with the city where the uh, city was declaring that it wanted to be proactive about 
um, delivering on its promise of building on what was already vital about then Dudley, now Nubian. Uh, I get a little sensitive about the idea that uh, Nubian has to be revitalized. We do know that there are some things that uh, we want to improve that need uh, perhaps to be stronger, but Dudley and Nubian have always been vital. Uh, and I think it's just about bringing it forward and making it more of a feature uh, for the city. When I came on to the venture in 2020, 2019 or so, um, you know, I think what helped me for my days at City Hall, for my days at the Bar Foundation was just having a broad network uh, in the city. Uh, folks that I knew uh, I could call and get excited about this, either uh, to be partners like King Boston, like Roxbury Cultural District, like the ICA, where we did uh, a great presentation uh, in the fall that featured uh, three of our bands. Um, but, uh, you know, it's also about calling that network to figure out uh, whom can we get to be a part of um, the investment group uh, for something like this. Uh, I think City Hall also helped give me a view into the many pieces that are moving to fully activate uh, Nubian Square and trying to figure out how can Jazzerbang complement those things? How can Jazzerbane be an accelerator for some of those things. I think the expectation is that even though Benjamin Franklin is coming to the square, uh, Richard Taylor's Nubian Ascends project, uh, the non-factory parcel eight, uh, a number of other things, we may be likely to land in the square before uh, many of those projects. So I think we're establishing um, uh, a, a bit of a, uh, a foundation for all of the change that is supposed to be uh, that is supposed to come, and I think we're being relied upon to be a bit of an anchor institution. We may be the first organization that gives more people a reason to be in the square beyond three, four, five o'clock uh, in the afternoon. We've had to think a lot about and have had the benefit of doing this thinking with partners like the Boston Ujima Project. How do we have to program so that what we program is primarily for the neighborhood, but we can walk, chew gum, do backflips at the same time and make sure that uh, this is not only a citywide attraction, but a regional attraction. Everybody will want to be there, but uh, you will you will know that and be respectful of you coming into other people's homes in Nubian Square, because this this will be uh, a Nubian Square joint, as it were. So the, the, it's interesting, you lifted up something with you being the anchor tenant in that space and going in first. One of the concerns that I've always had when I've thought about the project and just think about the development of Nubian Square is that you're first. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like in order for Jazzer Bain, and you could tell me and you fill in the blanks for me, in order for Jazzer Bain to really work and flourish, it needs to be part of an ecosystem yeah. and it can't be by itself. Like so we need to we need Jazzer Bain, but we need an art gallery. We need a comedy yeah, club. Yeah. We need a couple of things, kind of, you know, either at the same time as you guys drop in, yeah. or like it's almost like you everybody's got to drop their album on the same day. So you know, <laughs> I mean? get everybody in the store, and it's a similar situation because I I worry that if left um, by yourself, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to sustain until all those other things come yeah. in. Is that a concern for you at all? 
Somewhat, but, uh, and, and let me say, you just took me back uh, with your analogy to the day that Midnight Marauders and Illmatic came out on the same day. That was, exactly. that was just, uh, oh man, that was a beautiful night. Um, but flash forward many years uh, past that. So, you know, let, let me not, and let us not act like we're not coming into uh, a developing and, and pretty strong ecosystem. You've got Nubian Gallery there. Uh, you've got uh, Black Market uh, there. Uh, Roxbury Cultural District and a few organizations that even if you looked uh, this summer at the work that was done in Nubian Square where you had kind of more street festival activity, you had uh, more arts activity happening in the square. So uh, we know that there is pent up demand uh, in the square um, that we can build on. We know that there are forerunners like those uh, organizations uh, that are already doing the work that I think are going to grease the skids for and, and make life easier for Jazzerbane. Our hope is that uh, we can blow out the scope of demand and so that uh, we're more likely to send more folks their way to participate uh, in the street festival work that they're leading uh, and some other things. And that uh, as we start to take a look at that real estate and, uh, you know, I'm thinking about where you always see the, the gates down, uh, that white building over by Walgreens, uh, across the street from, from bowling, uh, that we can start to get into those spaces and that the city uh, can start to offer some ways to entrepreneurs at you know, rent-free or deeply discounted uh, rent to get into those spaces, can offer the technical assistance to grow new businesses there. Uh, the, the opportunity is there. We're not exactly the first and, and we will have the advantage of uh, building on some of the legacies of work that is already there, but there is work for us to collectively do. Uh, this is not just about any one organization making the square happen. That's so interesting. You know, thinking and hearing back to how, you know, we were seeing artists and artist residents getting like, you know, priced out of places like the, mm -hmm. the piano factory and how, even though there's a lot of investment happening in Nubian and around the city because of the nature of Boston and often because of policy, things close very early. So it yep. makes it, you know, kind of like, it's like, it's like a ghost town at six, seven o'clock. It's like, I want to mm -hmm. be out. I'm trying to, yeah. where, yeah. Are, where is everyone at? Yeah. I'm thinking about um, now with Mayor Wu and the Wu administration, I saw something interesting on Twitter where uh, someone had recommended maybe having like a nightmare, someone who would be focused on <laughs> revitalization and, you know, keeping the city open yep. after 8 p.m. and finding ways to use policy as an opportunity to create a new a new era in the city of Boston. And I think the state could also uh, recommend or, or really benefit from some type of program as well in that effort. From your time in philanthropy, Mm -hmm. And also working in government, you know, this public-private partnership is really crucial. What are your thoughts on how philanthropy and how government can really partner together to make, outside of these types of investments in infrastructure and in spaces, make policy change more more accessible so that we yeah. can get to that type of city? So uh, a, a variety of ways. And, and, you know, let's be clear that we want a night M-A-Y-A-R-O-O-R and not a night M-A-R-E. <laughs> yeah. So I do like that nightmare concept, though. And you could imagine that uh, even the, uh, the chief of arts for the city of Boston could really play uh, a role like that, uh, really thinking about how to activate the life uh, of the city 
uh, after hours. Um, you know, I'm not sure how it's constructed in other cities, but we see the effect similarly in places like Montreal, um, where I spend time from time to time. I mean, it's a city that's alive uh, at, at all times of day. Um, so I think there's a way to do that. Uh, so from a philanthropic standpoint, um, I know that there's been a lot of effort to, you know, start to knit together the arts community, provide the capacity that arts organizations need to curate, cultivate, activate their work. There are, you know, I find that it is still the case that people of color-led organizations still get nickel and dime, um, even as we're pursuing uh, the kind of mission that we need. So again, I keep coming back to Roxbury Cultural District because I, in particular, love Daniel Callahan's vision uh, and where he and his team are going, but they're such a small organization. I can't remember what their budget is, but it's uh, it's been below six figures. Um, you know, to, to quote Amari Paris Jeffries, sometimes that kind of money fall, falls out of people's left pocket in Boston. Um, that you've got an arts organization, several of them that have visions for what Nubian Square can be, you know, a half million to million dollar gift spread across three to four organizations in Nubian Square starts to go a long way. Boston can do better than that, uh, but it hasn't so far um, in my estimation. Yes, that kind of money is parked in some other places, but you know, a, a, a substantial seven to eight figure investment across organizations investing in uh, a kind of unified vision for the life of the square I think has exponential value. I think you get 2X, 3X, 4X uh, out of that kind of investment. I think where that philanthropy has to come together with the city is that uh, there is there are at least the rudiments of a plan at the city for what Nubian Square can look like. One, the city owns a lot of the parcels uh, there and is entertaining through the BPDA a lot of concepts, whether it's Nubian uh, Ascends, where you've got the combination of public and art spaces, artist housing, and some other things. Uh, couple that with parcel eight, which has uh, some similar pieces. Now, if we can get philanthropy to start thinking about uh, with government, all right, who's gonna be housed in these spaces? Let's make sure that rent's not a problem. Let's make sure they have the capacity to program the way that they want to. Uh, if we're serious about, um, uh, artists being able to live there. You know, let's think creatively about how we use philanthropic dollars to defray some of the costs either for them to do their life's work or to be residents there. But there is a way that we can think about this from a master planning standpoint that then combines uh, private capital and public capital to the effect that we want. Yeah, now, you know, so I just got back from uh, New Orleans. and I, I saw, I saw. <laughs> and I had an incredible time. Um, and when I was walking down there and I'm looking around, I'm like, yo, we could have this. And yeah. and we, so when we have these conversations about um, artists, housing and things like that, I also think about the number of venues has to increase as well because the artists yes. have to have a place to apply their trade. You know what I mean? I went into places and there was the every you know there's musicians all up and down through Bourbon mm -hmm. Street all around not just there but all around the city who are able to survive live thrive without day jobs mm -hmm. because 
there is music alive in the city of of New Orleans. And then I think about like um, Bushwick in, in Brooklyn, like uh-huh. where where how where are the places or Wynwood in in Miami? How where are the places and spaces? What is the plan for us to create those here? Because the 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 value of those spaces is so high once they're executed in the right way. And because there's so many different, yeah. it's not just the bars or the, the music venues, but it's the restaurants. It's uh, now I'm, I'm coming to the Nubian Square. I'm going to Jazzerbane one night. I'm going to Reggie's Bar and Grill the next night. I'm mm-hmm. going here, mm-hmm. I'm going there. You know what I mean? What is it, what is it that we can do as, as, as citizens to support someone like yourself who is who's trying to create that space like do who's chained you know who's whose door do we need to knock on (laughs) let let them know that this is something we need yeah um you know one uh so we've got champions in city hall not the least of whom is the new chief of uh economic development and economic inclusion shigan iduwu um you know i think it's letting folks like shigan know uh like the mayor know this is something that has to happen uh, in Boston. And it doesn't happen easily. Uh, and I think, Greg, you've mentioned this to me uh, a few times. The hurdles on licensing, the hurdles on zoning and some other things are really prohibited uh, for a lot of folks. And you know, we're, we're addressing those now uh, and with the city as a, a partner. But it's like, my God, I mean, um, you know, it really does take a Herculean effort to kind of get through all these gates uh, to get to a place where you can just set up shop and do your work. So I think one expressing the demand, um, you know, also let let us know uh, that you love us and show us show up to uh, things that we're planning uh, with partners as well. You can uh, follow us on Facebook or Instagram, uh, Jazzerbane. Uh, on Facebook, Jazzerbane underscore on Instagram, uh, and stay in the loop both on the music that's being produced and, and the progress uh, of this project. But as we'll be doing demonstrations, uh, we want to see you at the, the demonstrations. I think I mentioned earlier that there are still uh, investment opportunities uh, with Jazzerbane as well. And, and we really want to make sure that we are a community owned project. Um, and uh, if you are interested uh, being uh, among the ownership group. We'd love to talk to you uh, about that uh, as well. Um, you know, as far as the ecosystem is concerned, I think we also want some of our uh, mainline arts institutions to carve out the space at their institutions uh, for the work uh, that uh, artists and entrepreneurs want to do. So, you know, uh, there probably needs to be dedicated time and space at the ICA, at the MFA, at the Gardner, and some other places. And I know. Uh, each uh, has gotten more dedicated uh, to doing that. But I think the expectation has to be that uh, anywhere you go in Boston, you're starting to walk into uh, cultural spaces that represent us and represent the diversity uh, of Boston. Um, As alive as I want to see Nubian Square, I want to make sure that, you know, you feel welcome in the seaport. I want to make sure that something represents you there. And, And we know that a place like the seaport has a long way to go um, to uh, achieve that level of welcoming and belonging, but where we have a new opportunity as there are early stages of talks about the development of Dorchester Bay City uh, out on Harbor Point, we can make sure that what happens there doesn't just produce another version of the seaport. 
uh, and we can think ahead about making sure that this is going to be a place that entrepreneurs of color do their business, uh, that will be artist friendly, that for patrons who want to be there, uh, you can spend the whole night there and still have to spend three more nights to exhaust the options that you you have uh, to, to kind of have the good time that you want to have. Then you can come over and hit Nubian and, and go elsewhere. Um, but that, again, takes a combination of the philanthropic and public capital, but enough of a master planning vision that we can get there. Because if we continue to kind of develop things on a project by project basis and on a nickel and diming basis where uh, entrepreneurs of color get 10 cent versus the, the dollar that uh, white entrepreneurs uh, might get, this is going to be slow to aggregate to a tipping point where we can say, Boston has a decidedly different character and is far more representative of the people who live here. It's part of the problem that we're at, maybe, because as I'm thinking, because I'm, I'm you know, going through this in my head, are, is part of the problem that we're asking the wrong people in terms of, mm -hmm. and, and, and what I mean is, and like you use the example of entrepreneurs of color and not uh, getting the short end of the stick and getting underfunded or whatever. Does it mean we need to start looking outside of our institutions that are traditionally here in Boston? So instead of asking the person who said no or underfunded right. the last hundred times, does that mean that we need to, do we need to go to talk to one of your friends in Detroit? Or do we need to go right. down to Dallas? Or do we need to go to Houston? Or because I feel like, you know, you know, you, you keep doing the same thing, you're gonna get the same results. Yeah. So yeah. like, what, what are some of the things that, what do you think are some of the ways that we can infuse some some different energy yep. in that to get some different results. No, I think you're right about that. So one, you've got places uh, like Atlanta in particular that have more mature people of color led uh, uh, equity sectors. Um, and I think we need to avail ourselves of some of the relationships that Boston has with uh, those investors uh, uh, in other cities who are interested in projects like this. Uh, I think we need to think about how do we uh, blow out the equity base of organizations like Ujima and Visible Hand um, uh, to do more investment and scaled investment uh, in entrepreneurs of color. Um, you know, Ujima did a very successful, I believe it was $5 million raise uh, for its fund. Um, but, you know, and I've shared this with them, so I won't be talking out of school. I was like, you know, why isn't this a $25 million uh, fund and there are reasons uh, uh, for it, um, and uh, I don't. I also don't want to reduce Ujima to just the fund because they do have uh, a vision for uh, really a more just economy that is inclusive of of that investment. But I think we need more of those vehicles uh, uh, where we are aggregating more investable funding, but it is really purposed for. Um, investing in entrepreneurs, businesses of color, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, is this something that KB does at some point uh, in its life where it thinks about making equity side uh, investments as well? It could be uh, in that, you know, you guys have created a new organization that is really dedicated uh, in, at least in the Boston context, in some very sharp and unusual ways to uh, racial and economic justice. I would say the same thing of the new Commonwealth Fund uh, as well. So, you know, really thinking about how we can get creative around the use of capital uh, in that way. The third thing here is that I think we've got to expand 
uh, the group of investors of color who can do deals uh, in the city. So if you think back to when One Financial was done, probably, I guess that was 20, 30 years ago, uh, maybe there was a small group of uh, investors of color who were in on, on that deal. You flash forward to the Omni deal that just happened in the seaport and very gladly and gratefully, you've got a set of entrepreneur uh, investors of color who are in on that deal, but it's many of the same people. Mm. Uh, and so part of what it's telling me is that we've just, and you know, the color of wealth and other reporting tell us this as well, we've not kind of spread the wealth in a way where uh, more folks of color have the autonomy to use their capital to invest in the ways that they want to, to make the city what they want it to be. So one, we've got to do the work of kind of expanding the base of wealth. But the other thing is we've got to create more deals for smaller investors uh, as well, because not everybody is going to get be able to get in at a million dollar level, a half million dollar level, $50,000 level. We've got to create some deals where 5,000 gets you in, 10,000 gets you in, 25,000 gets you in, where you can start to build from there, which is one of the things I really love about Ujima because it is really about uh, creating a base for small investors, but we've got to create uh, some more opportunities for people who, uh, they're not career investors, they're not professional investors, but they want to use their personal, cap personal capital to invest in their communities. Yeah, it's so interesting, uh, this point around visible hands. I remember this Globe article that I saw that I think came out a couple days ago uh, mm -hmm. regarding just, I know that the share or the percentage of Black people and Black founders are smaller in Massachusetts given the total population, mm -hmm. but for us to rank third, for Massachusetts to rank third in all venture capital funding since 2016, right. but, but to rank 20th in terms of the amount of yeah. venture capital that are going to black founders, it's, yeah. it's really unconscionable and it shows. Well, I mean, it goes back to Greg's uh, Game of Thrones yeah. uh, comment. I mean, it, it is still really balkanized. Of course, big dollars are going to big investment spaces like biotech uh, and some other places. But I think we need uh, equity investors to realize that um, the development of a thriving and profitable ecosystem is not just about the mainline businesses. It's about the supply chain. It's about the environment uh, around the office building and around the lab space. It's about what you create in the places that people uh, have to live and that there is a return there. Is it going to be the same return uh, as if you put that investment into Biogen or whatever tech startup? Maybe not, but that's not exactly the litmus test because they're taking losses on things that never pan out. Mm. Uh, whereas I would say to you that there are some things that may seem more mundane that entrepreneurs are doing that are better guaranteed uh, of being sustainable, but perhaps at uh, uh, less of a margin. And that's fine. I mean, they're portfolio builders. Not everything has to hit it out of the park. But you know what the other piece of it is? If I invest in this restaurant group or whatever, and that creates an environment that keeps my, my lab technicians happy, <laughs> then yeah. the logic is that I'll keep the lab technicians longer. Like, so even yeah. though you may, may not, it may not be a, a direct link, it actually is connected because 
the biggest problem that we have in terms of keeping people in the city is always the life that they think they will live when they're outside of work. That's right. You know what I mean? Right. It's not just the opportunity. Some the thing about Boston is that, and we're it's, we're I think we're spoiled with this. Our opportunities are so big that it's hard for people to turn down. So whatever is outside of work, they'll just eat that because they'll take the opportunity. But mm -hmm. we need to, in order to keep people, I think about all the people that we've lost. You know, yep. shoot, even even with with King Boston, you know, the, Dr. and Mrs. King were here. Right. <laughs> they right. met here. Right. And after they graduated, they were like, all right, then. Now, granted, there was something that was calling Dr. King back home. <laughs> right. But my point is that there, there are thousands of, of college students that come from all around the world. And, you know, how many of them, the ones that choose to keep Boston are the ones like yourselves who did find a community, who found the, who found those spaces for themselves. But what if we made more of those spaces and more of those opportunities to keep some of that talent? I mean, I think your point is even more profound in the age of expanding remote work, where it may be more likely that you spend more time in the club than than in a corporate office building. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think we do have to think about uh, where flexibility is starting to become uh, a condition of employment for a lot of people seeking jobs. Yeah. Then it becomes more about where do I live? How do I live? How is my employer making me comfortable in the in the time that I have to give you during the work day and the work week? But what else is happening? Like, I don't leave my neighborhood for the most part anymore. So my neighborhood has to be live. Like, I, you know, mm -hmm. when it's quitting time. I want to walk out the door and have an option to 10 things to do. I'm also curious, too. You know, we talked a little bit about education and employment in terms of you know this economic opportunity do we need to be considering what types of changes to education need to be made so that like entrepreneurs and folks who are interested in business can have access to learning about it well before they yeah. get uh you know higher education if they can afford to go to higher ed <laughs> and you know like what programs are we seeing as you know quality per se you know like these elite schools have all the access and the resources but often you a lot of deals are made based off of your network. If yeah. you can't afford to get into the room, how are you expected to then go out and raise hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars towards this great yeah. idea that could really yeah. solve uh, some of the challenges that we're facing in communities? So you're about to take me to a whole other place uh, on this reg. So maybe we'll talk a little bit of uh, education policy and and uh, I think education uh, innovation. Uh, in general. Uh, so let me go back to something that uh, I think was kind of my stump speech while I was in government, uh, and at least the vision that I was trying to paint uh, for Boston, that uh, we would create a Boston where the city was the classroom. Mm. Um, and that's not to negate the power and the necessity of what happens inside of traditional classrooms, but I think to convey the learning and build the experience that you're talking about, it re really requires that we do what I like to call authentic learning. And authentic learning is immersive. Authentic learning takes place in communities and in the places where uh, the outcomes, the products, the things uh, uh, that we desire and envision uh, are produced. Uh, the folks who teach it best are the folks who actually do it. Uh, for a living. And so uh, what I oftentimes like to say is that uh, I love our science and STEM teachers 
in our public schools, but there are very few of them who know what a bioinformatics engineer is. Um, mm -hmm. They may be able to help you lay the groundwork for becoming that thing, but I want young people to be in relationship with bioinformatics engineers so that they know that that's a possibility, but they also get the firsthand knowledge from the people who do that work uh, for a living. Um, school is powerful and, this, and necessary for many things, but there's a lot, uh, especially in a dynamic world that school is trying to simulate that can't be simulated well. Um, you need to actually be learning in the environments uh, where the action is. And we can create systems to do that. Um, we've already created the base of that system, I think, through the summer learning system uh, in Boston, where every summer, 25,000 young people uh, are learning in community-based settings, from natural settings uh, on the Harbor Islands uh, to Hell Reservation, where they're learning on college campuses. Uh, arts institutions like the ICA. So there is a way for us to network learning in a way that plays to the passions uh, of young people, but also opens their eyes to a number of uh, possibilities. Um, Greg, you'll remember that uh, back in our Freedom Summer days, there was a group of young men uh, called Men of Action. Um, Kenny Bailey and I and Matt Gibson oh, yeah, 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 supported, supported these young guys. Uh, brilliant group of young guys, but I remember they were about 14 to 20 years of age, and it was the first time out of many times that I heard young people in Boston uh, say to me that they had never been across the Charles River or they had never done X, Y, Z. And I started to then realize that in this world city, uh, we've got a group of young people, mostly of color growing up, who don't know the full possibility and certainly uh, don't have the entitlement to fully be Bostonians. And we've got to change that reality for them. There's a kid being born in Singapore whose parents know they're going to show up on Harvard's campus. There's a kid being born in Dorchester who could basically walk to Harvard's campus for whom Harvard is not in their imagination. And that's not to put uh, Harvard mm -hmm. you know, on some pedestal. It's just to uh, underscore the point that in a city that has 35 higher ed institutions in the city limits and 75 in the region, uh, that that imagination and, and our range is as constrained as it is for young people and their families, they're cycle breaking to be done. And part of the way that you do that is through the creation of more uh, experiential learning opportunities that get learning out of the classroom, but I think appropriately network those experiences with, with what happens in classrooms. Yeah, that, that I mean, the, the idea of thinking outside of the, your neighborhood is, is something that was, it was strange when I moved to Boston. So, I, you know, I was born here, lived in New Jersey, and then came back. And mm -hmm. when I came back, I'm like in the, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, and all of it was foreign to me. It was all Boston. Mm -hmm. So my thought process has never been constrained to my neighborhood. So I yeah. would get, so when I would go to school on Monday and say, hey, yeah, I went out to Cambridge to go get my comic books and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Everybody would act like I went to the other side of the planet. Right. You know what I mean? I wrote, right. All I did was ride from one end of the red line to the other. You know what I mean? To go buy records and, and comic books. But it was like a whole new world. So, I mean, I think that some of that change that we have to do also is in the, in the mentality of, of folks in the city that we have to get people to realize that the entire city is yours. Yeah, you know? that is exactly and, right. And there, there's some lived memory here that 
you know, Absolutely. I understand. I mean, people went through some stuff uh, in the city, but it, it just means that we've got to figure out how to get each other's backs, create the safe space and the safe passageways uh, to allow for that. But I think also work at institutional levels where if the school experience is one that necessitates you being community embedded, being a community explorer, then we create a different kind of community agent that has a different kind of sensibility about what it means to be a resident uh, in Boston. Uh, again, as I think back uh, on my own experience, I became a public policy researcher because I went to work for a research firm when I was 16 years old. Uh, and the Black entrepreneur who owned that firm outside of Detroit said, I know you think this is a summer job, but this is your first day of figuring out whether you're going to take over this business one day. Uh, and I spent five years, summers, vacations, uh, a full year uh, with him. And that was really uh, what got me prepared for a 13-year career at After Associates uh, in Cambridge. But I almost didn't know what else to be uh, besides a public policy researcher. But to have that kind of clarity and experience where by 19, I'm running projects for the state and the city. Uh, I'm taking meetings with the then uh, mayor of Detroit as a 19 year old, like I know our, our young people are more than capable of that. I was scratching the surface uh, as, as a young person, but if you've got that kind of life experience, I think the sky's the limit. Um, and if we can then figure out how to better coordinate it with the classroom experience, because I was having this, this experience and sometimes school wasn't living up to all of the learning that I was doing um, in, in uh, what was becoming my vocation uh, and profession. But I think if we can start to de design a learning experience that better links those two, man, uh, I, I can only imagine what we'll produce. Ron, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing your journey and your story. You know, policy as, as men of color, as black men, you know, working on issues around racial and economic justice and seeing what the field of public policy has looked like, what the field of government has typically looked like. You know, we are literally being the change, you know, we're building the ship while sailing it. And I hope that others feel inspired to, you know, to take that internship and to take that opportunity yes. that they might not have traditionally um, thought as a good fit for them. But as you just said, it could set you up for a career, a successful career and a lifetime full of promising and fulfilling work that's really geared towards social change. So thank mm -hmm. you. Yes. And we, we fully expect that we will have a table at Jazz or Bain. Um, oh, for you sure. Know we're going to put your name on a bar seat, Greg, right next to, to Regis. I appreciate that. I, you know, give me a coupon for some apps. You know what I'm saying? And I'll be good. I'll be <laughs> uh, we might even have some turntables set up for you, bro. You might be the, the featured DJ a couple of No, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I'll give somebody who can actually DJ. We don't want to have me in there. All right, we'll set you up on Spotify. You can just play your favorite records. <laughs> That I can do. I got you for that. I got you on that. Listen, man, I appreciate you joining us today. Such a pleasure wow. to be with both of you. And yeah. I, I appreciate your friendship and your leadership. Man, as we do these episodes, it always amazes me how quick time flies by when we do these. Like, we just sat here and and and, and I feel like I still haven't even gotten all the rest of your stories. So we had to bring you back for we'll sure so we can it's hear about your, your days surviving in city hall and all that good stuff <laughs> oh man we yeah yeah that that'll be fun uh i got a couple of other people you might want to bring on the show with me because the, the the interaction will make it even more lively 
Yeah, see that, that that might be the drink champs episode where we do it <laughs> we feel like Nori. And we can really get these good stories out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, man, thank you so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is uh the latest episode of of Good Trouble, and we appreciate you for uh taking your time and listening to us. Please make sure that you follow uh King Boston on all social platforms and all like this stuff and all the good people over at Mass Budget. Reggie, you want to give a shout out to the party people before we leave? Yeah, absolutely. We're at Mass Budget on all major socials and also make sure to follow Jazzer Bane on all socials possible. Mm-hmm. And we'll see y'all next week. <laughs>